When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, the world of big tech, flashy devices, ad businesses, and dividends? Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me in the studio, Motley Fool Senior Analysts, Jason Moser and Bill Mann. Gentlemen, great to have you both here. That's true. We've got earnings updates from Big Tech, two stories that have us checking in on the panic meter, and insights from a CEO that's led his company and shareholders to 3,000% returns in his tenure. We're going to kick off with the Big Tech beat. Massive week for earnings. We have updates from Apple, Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, and more. Jason, growth is back at the second largest company in the world. Apple reported top-line growth for the first time in over a year in its holiday quarter results. What got the company back on track? I feel like that second largest company was a little bit of a jab. It's a little dig, you know? Dig, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, these things come in waves, right? Uh, I think with Apple, yeah, relative to the other bigs, this was an okay quarter. Uh, Nothing special, but it was good. I think the bigger question really is probably focused on more on what do things look like going forward. But I mean, looking at the numbers, they did return to revenue growth up 2% for the quarter with earnings per share up 16%. So uh, obviously taking advantage of that scale. When you break it out into segment, uh, iPhone revenue was up 6%, Mac revenue basically flat, iPad down 25%, wearables home and accessories down 11%, and then services up 11%. So, you know, we're seeing more and more. We, we've talked about Apple kind of becoming the services company. That that continues to a degree, and it is important because that services revenue is so much higher margin than the hardware, right? I mean, to the tune of about 2x, right? Basically double the gross margin of that, of that hardware. Still big questions there in regard to China. China down 13% for the quarter. Uh, so, so I think all in all, you know, the, the tepid response from, from investors makes a lot of sense, given that the future doesn't, it's not so clear right now. I feel like we've been watching this services increase as a portion of the revenue for a while, but it feels an awful lot like trying to change the direction of a cruise ship, Bill. I mean, it's, it's just such a big company. Well, I just wanted to ask, Jason, if you could get into the heads of leadership, Tim Cook, would they get out of hardware if they could, if they could just be a services business at Apple? Well, I mean, I can't imagine that. Not given how well they do hardware, I mean, that's that's just something that, that they're so well known for. But but clearly, I mean, they are trying to steer this more and more in, yeah. in that services direction, which which makes a lot right. of sense. I agree. I view the hard the hardware as being their moat. Yeah, yeah. We did get an update on their hardware offerings, or at least we finally have hands on their latest hardware offering. Their Vision Pro is officially on sale this week. Jason, it costs thirty five hundred dollars. That's not on sale. <laughs> <laughs> that is full it's, price. It's available for purchase, <laughs> yeah. I should say. Yeah. What does this device mean for Apple? 
Uh, well, this is just the first step. I don't think it means a lot, uh, at least in the near term, right? I mean, this is the first step for them, and I think what will be a, a multi-years and potentially really multi-decades uh, effort, right? I mean, if you listen to Tim Cook, I mean, he says the Apple Vision Pro is a revolutionary device built on decades of innovation. It's years ahead of anything else. I don't know that I necessarily buy into the years ahead of everything else. I mean, I, I, it wasn't the form factor to me. It's the same as all of the others, right? And that, to me, is the biggest sticking point with all of these, whether it's Oculus or Vision Pro or whatever else. So, the problem is you got to get the device built first to figure out what exactly you can do with it. And I think that's what we're going to see over the course of the next several years uh, and beyond, is ultimately these companies trying to figure out what they can do with these devices, why we need them as consumers, and then Absolutely, they need to continue work on bringing that form factor down because, to me, that's the biggest roadblock with all of this. Not just Apple, but with any company that's getting into this headset space, that form factor has got to change, or there is just there's no mass adoption. We're going to stay in the metaverse and check in on Meta. Company also reported this week shares up 20% after we saw full year results. We got the standard updates from the company, but also a big time surprise a dividend announcement. <laughs> Zuckerberg giving himself a little raise there, right? He's getting a little bump, a little $175 million per quarter given his current share count. So that is- that's. Uh, if you annualize that, which you should do, that's $700 million a year, which is pretty good. If you don't own quite as many shares as Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> you'll be getting $0.50 cents per share. What do you make That's of- most of us, by the way. <laughs> what, uh, Jason, what do, you, what do you make of this capital allocation decision? Well, I, you know, it's okay. I, I don't mind it. I mean, I, I, it certainly is a nice diversion away from the cash incinerator that is Reality Labs, and, and so, so that's good. I mean, I, look, you look at the business and what they tried to do in 2023, right? The year of efficiency, well, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they saw a 10% uh, point bounce in operating margin from 25% last year to 35% this year. So, they really did deliver on that year of efficiency. But even more encouraging is now we're seeing the business start to turn back around on the revenue side, the advertising demand that obviously remains there, three-plus billion users around the world. I mean, listen, they grew that advertising revenue. They grew that revenue 25% with expenses along the way coming down 8%, right? Earnings per share better than 200%. But you know the one thing that stood out to me on the release? And we knew this this was happening, headcount down 22%. Incredible. So, on the one hand, you have to ask the question, why did you? Why were you so bloated to begin with? Well, I mean, they weren't the only ones. I think we've we've seen this, uh, you know, all 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 across the market. Um, but it just really stood out to me. They brought their headcount on twenty two percent, clearly playing a role in the cost structure. It seems like a fitting time to check in on Meta because Facebook turns twenty this weekend. Back then, it was the Facebook. Now it is Meta. Gone through a couple name changes along the way, and we've seen the business change. And I think one thing that was a little buried in the results that we saw and some of the commentary from from management was a bit of a transition away from a focus on the legacy what was namesake platform, Facebook, and much more of a portfolio view of the business, Jason. Yeah, and I think you you look at the name Meta Platforms, I mean, they really are just trying to communicate that we are a platform with a number of different properties. As these companies get bigger and they have more contributors to, to, to the top and bottom lines, they don't necessarily need to be so granular. We saw Apple do the same thing back in the day in, in regard to the to the numbers of devices uh, that they were reporting. Uh, this, to me, just it, it, it really does make a lot of sense, just given 
where Facebook is as big as the user base is today uh, with meta platforms? I think the dividend itself and the reduction in headcount both have something to do with each other because you've come to a time in which money is no longer free and they're sitting on $65 billion in cash that is unencumbered. It's just sitting there. And they have come to the realization that, yes, as a platform company, they've needed to rationalize some of the investments that they've made. I do think it's funny at this point that this company is called Meta and they barely talked about the meta metaverse. It would be like, you know, a company called Buggy Whip. Incorporated being up two hundred billion dollars in a day. Well, I think that's the biggest question in regard to Reality Labs and the metaverse aspirations, right? I mean, Reality Labs chalking up another four point six billion dollar loss for the quarter, not for the year. Four point six billion dollars for the quarter. And it made me think of Amazon back in the day. We could be very critical of Amazon and all of their investments and just perpetuating losses. But it was an easier leap, at least then, because you know that people are keep people are going to buy stuff, and we could see the clear trend that people were buying more and more online. Here, I just I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but it definitely requires a greater leap of faith for investors to believe that the metaverse will develop into something. It just really hasn't yet, not for the masses. That's the big question mark, but they're going to keep on investing. The thing that you have to know about Mark Zuckerberg is that he's not a romantic. And so when things are not working, he is going to cut and he's going to change. And I think that is to his credit as Absolutely. a CEO. So on that note, I want to put a reckless prediction over to you, Bill. Will Meta still be called Meta in five years? No. No. I don't think so. I mean, there's the Berkshire Hathaway example where the Berkshire Hathaway is actually named after a failed investment. It should be platforms or you know reality labs, but no, I don't think it will be. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap the segment checking in on Microsoft. Uh, we have results from the newly crowned largest company in the world, Jason, and they seemed awfully strong. Dig number two. <laughs> yes, very strong. The big takeaway for investors, right? I mean, Microsoft is absolutely seen as the leader in the AI space, at least in regard to the big, right, the big three or big four. NVIDIA is just in, in a world of their own, so I don't include them there. But when you talk about companies like Amazon and, and Alphabet and Meta and Microsoft, Microsoft is just seen as the leader right now. And, and they do so many things well beyond that. I mean, productivity, storage, developers, security. And now, I mean, gaming, listen, they closed that Activision Blizzard deal, and that gives them 13 $1 billion-plus gaming franchises. This is a monster in the gaming space. I just don't think you can forget about that. But they grew revenue 16%, uh, excluding currency effects, cloud revenue up 24%. These guys just keep on getting it done. I love the fact that we're shoehorning in a $3 trillion company, like right at the end. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll, we'll sneak them in right before we go to break. <laughs> Status quo. Speaking yeah. of, after the break, we've got one more update from Big Tech and a closer look at some of the headlines that might be scarier than they actually are. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Ricky Mulvey with Motley Fool Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, and tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. 
Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. Full Money. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined in studio by Bill Mann and Jason Moser. We hit Apple, Microsoft, and Meta updates, but we can't leave Amazon out of the big tech party. Jason, the cloud was a huge focus for Microsoft. When we saw results from Amazon, how are things looking over at AWS? Yeah, I think this quarter really pulled back the curtain on how well diversified this business has become. AWS revenue, because I mean, AWS, that's really kind of the first thing we focus on now. Uh, revenue, $24.2 billion. It was up 13% from a year ago, with operating income up 38%. Operating margin in that cloud division, 29.6%. That was up 500 basis points from a year ago. So, all things considered, AWS continues to, as Ron Gross might say, five. On all cylinders, uh, but but back to the the diversification of this business. I mean, look at the other parts of it. Advertising up twenty six percent. I mean, they are really seeing a lot of benefit from building out that entertainment aspect, that inter- entertainment side of the business. And then, of course, the retail operations continue to kill it. Uh, growth spread out equally between uh, U.S. and international. And one little snippet I thought was interesting because we know how important third-party sellers are to Amazon. Worldwide, third-party seller unit mix was 61% this quarter, its highest ever. You know, you don't want to see a company cost-cut its way to success. and In fact, that's a hard way for companies to tend to do so, because you always want to go back and say, well, if you're cost-cutting now, does that mean that you were lacking discipline before? But this quarter also had, for Amazon, the rocket fuel of a reduction in overhead. So, they had great online sales growth, but the, re- but the reduction in cost primarily you know, at you know, their central operations really fueled an unbelievable quarter. So, so much of the theme in 2023 with big tech and companies in general was the year of efficiency. Meta got the branding on that, but we saw it across the board, really, with with the companies focusing on their capital allocation and where they're putting money to work. Looking at what we're seeing, Bill, so far from big tech and the market's reaction to the big tech results, what are we zeroing in on here? You know, I think one of the more interesting things is the fact that Meta decided to declare a dividend and the market is reacting positively to it, which is the opposite of what happened when Microsoft did a few years ago. People are like, well, don't you have more places you can put your money? Efficiency does, if you are doing it right, leave money to be allocated in a different way. And I think that these companies, we talked about this last week, you know, about how uh, Microsoft is now, you know, 468 dollars per man, woman, and child on the planet, they are not necessarily going to become more valuable increasing their revenues across the board as they will being more efficient going forward. Jason, any other takeaways as we put all the big tech results together? Yeah, I think when you look at at big tech, particularly I'm thinking Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet, and there was some language in a lot of these calls, and I'll call out something just from Amazon's call. They said, while cost optimization, uh, and this is in regard to, to cloud, while cost optimization continued to attenuate, larger new deals also accelerated. And ultimately, I, you know, I think this has broader implications beyond just these three companies. I mean, I think it's a sign that 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 spend may be coming back around for a lot of these enterprises uh, based on the language in these calls. So I think you know that that is is certainly something that should play out as a nice tailwind for for big tech, but also a lot of their customers, which uh, represents some great investing opportunities as well. Yep. 
In addition to the usual earnings updates this week, some pockets of concerns with a couple stories. And Bill, Jason, I wanted to get your take on where these rank on the panic meter. First up, shares of New York Community Bank Corp down 40% this week after the company reported rising losses and cut its dividend. Bill, the regional banking issues of 2023 still very fresh in a lot of people's minds. Is this something people need to be concerned about? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, so this is a rather big bank. It is an interesting story because New York Community Bank Corp was the company that bought the assets from Signature Bank, which failed basically due to their ownership in crypto when crypto collapsed. So, how would you like to be a bank director now, having to explain that you've lost money off of buying something at a discount that's already taken down other banks? Not great. Sounds like an easy <laughs> conversation to have. Yeah, I, <laughs> they did it. Why shouldn't we? It's going to work for somebody someday. Yeah, it was it was a bad quarter for them. It also is a little bit of a recognition of the fact that they have a huge amount of exposure to commercial real estate. And I don't know if you've heard this, but a lot of offices and a lot <laughs> of places still aren't full. There have been a huge amount of bankruptcies in the in the in the commercial space, and. I think ultimately the reality for New York Community Bank is that nobody really focused on their need to raise their provisions for credit losses sooner. So they did it all at once. Yeah, Jason, this is a literal leveling up of the requirements for this business. Does does this seem like something where management is maybe a little bit behind, but being prudent here? I, I would hope that's the case. I mean, I certainly understand the near-term concerns in, in in this situation. I mean, you've got a bank now that's all all of a sudden it's going to be lo- it's going to be lofted into this category four banking, right? I mean, this these are the biggest of the bigs. There's a lot that comes with that, right? Enhanced financial standards and reporting. I mean, they, they have to really kind of rebuild this business. That takes time and capital. So I certainly understand you know cutting that dividend. I mean, it's nice that they've at least still maintained it. I, I understand concerns when you're building up allowances for credit loss. But you know, hey, listen, they grew tangible book value from a year ago, so that's encouraging. It, 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 there, there are a lot of unknowns when it comes with some of these, some of these kinds of deals. But yeah, I, I don't know that I really see this as something to be worried about longer term. But by the same token, I, I get the short term concerns. Yeah, it didn't happen from nowhere. Bill, I want to give you the the final take. There is is this really something that we should be zeroing on specifically to New York Community Bank, or is this something we should be watching for the industry? So their net interest margin kind of collapsed this last quarter, and I think that I, I think that it is it is specific to New York Community Bank Corp. I mean, the the analysts on the call were absolutely withering with the fact that the changes and the you know and, and the set asides that they made were so big that why why is it that you haven't been able to, to predict this. And by the way, how about some good predictions now for what's going forward <laughs> now that you've done this? And so, I think it is specific to them, but you're talking about something that's happening in, a, happening in an environment around the world where commercial real estate is a financial problem. And if those are the assets on your balance sheet, you should at some level be worried. You teed me up better than you possibly could have known for our second topic for the panic meter. Uh, and this zooms in on real estate, but takes us outside the United States. And usually I go global when I've got you on the show, Bill. Uh, this week, a judge in China ruled that failed real estate giant Evergrande will move to liquidation. This is a story we've been following for a little bit, dating back to the company originally defaulting on its dollar denominated debt. How big of a deal is this, Bill? It's huge in a lot of ways. So it's huge. Let's start with the top number. They owe somebody $300 billion. 
<laughs> I don't know if you know that, but that's a lot. Yeah, that's a huge chunk of change. Yeah, and so uh, a bankruptcy judge actually in Hong Kong said, okay, fine, you've been trying to figure out how to reorganize. We're done with this, so we're now going to wind up operations. And so this becomes a much more political hot button in China. And the reason is this. A lot of the money that's owed is owed to people who have put deposits down on apartments and houses that will now never get built. So, really, the big issue is that this is a political question as much as it is a financial one. In China, most of the money is owed to individuals who bought, you know, put deposits down for houses that they're not going to get. Bankruptcy law treats them very low in the stack, but internationally, you know, most of the debt is owed outside of the country. And so, what does China do here? Do they follow bankruptcy law or do they do the politically efficient thing? Bill, Jason, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, we've got a familiar name in your financial lives that might be worth looking at in your portfolio. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Full Money. Come on. Welcome back to Motley Full Money. I'm Dylan Lewis. When you hear FICO, your mind might go to personal finances and your credit card statements. But you'd be pretty happy if the name was in your stock portfolio. The company is the standard in consumer credit scores, and under CEO Will Lansing over the last 12 years, shareholders are up over 3,000%, crushing the S&P 500. This week, we caught up with Lansing about his team's management philosophy, why investors should focus on more than just the company's scoring business, and the way AI and buy now, pay later are affecting the credit industry. I'm sure our listeners know the name FICO, and uh, probably know that you're a number that matters in their financial lives, but could you kick off talking a little bit about how you fit into the consumer credit and scoring place? Because I know there are a lot of players in that environment. That's probably the place where we're best known is for our scores, FICO scores. That's one of our two businesses. We have scores and software. And scores has been kind of um, an evolving business for us. And we got started in it long ago. We're a 65 year old company. And we got into scores, proprietary scores for lenders in the 50, 60, in the, in, oh God, 50, 60 years ago. What happened was we found ourselves building scorecards for individual banks. And we did that for many, many years. Then we thought, you know, if we could make one of these more generic, more available to everybody, there'd be a, a market for it. And so in 1987, we launched the the first industry-wide FICO score in, in partnership with Equifax. That had great success. I mean, the lenders loved that. They, you know, suddenly they had this low-cost automated way to evaluate credit. And um, and so that took off. And then our next innovation was, well, instead of just doing it on the Equifax uh, credit file, why don't we do this on TransUnion and Experian also? And we'll have more of an industry-wide score available to any lender who uses any of the three bureaus data. And so we did that. And it made the score even more popular with lenders because, you know, as you can imagine, it gave them a little bit of flexibility and leverage with the with the bureaus, and suddenly it was available to a lot more lenders. So that worked out pretty well. Then, um, then what happened was the regulators who are looking for ways to evaluate the risk in the portfolios of the banks that they regulate identified FICO score as a kind of a common common way of um, evaluating risk. And so they started to ask the lenders for that. Uh, let, let us see the average FICO score for this portfolio, for that portfolio. 
And so that went over pretty well. And uh, relatively quickly, the regulators came to um, you know rely on the FICO score as a pretty scientific and, and easy to get measure of risk for those portfolios. So now you've got uh, the lenders who are using it because it's a great value proposition for them. They can make low cost credit decisions. You got the regulators who are finding it useful for measuring risk. Um, lenders are happy to please the regulators, as you can imagine. And then, you know, a lot of um, certainly in the last 40 years, a lot of lenders have taken to securitizing their loans. And so you have the investors saying to the lenders, hey, how, how can we evaluate the risk in this paper you're trying to sell us? And obviously the FICO score, which is available for every one of the loans in there, uh, becomes a, a really good tool for investors to evaluate the quality of the portfolios that they're buying. And so now you've got these three constituencies that are all relying on the FICO score. And that's really how we became the, the anchor of the credit ecosystem. That's why we're so deeply embedded where we are the industry standard. You know, we're very predictive. There's a lot of good reasons for it, but, but also the network effects are very powerful because, um, you know, once you're as deeply embedded as we are, it's hard to get out. So is the, the thought there that basically you guys have done something well, and when you do something well, the use for it just continues to grow and grow and you're able to serve more stakeholders? For sure. I mean, you know, I've, I'm often asked, how do you, how is it that FICO became an industry standard? Everybody would like to be an industry standard. How did you guys do it? And, you know, I, as I explained, it, it happened over time with building different constituencies for the score. And then when we had, you know, we had, we, then you get into network effects because you've got, you have all these, this utility that, that happens in different places. And so, and actually we worked on that, you know, we became ever more embedded. And then we thought, is there anything else we can do to really cement our position in this ecosystem? And we're running a business, right? <laughs> and so, um, so we came up with this idea about 10 years ago, we came up with this idea of providing the FICO score to consumers. And we said, hey, what, you know, you lenders, you're, you're buying the FICO score from us. How about if we give you a free reuse and you can share it with your consumer customers? And initially they were a little hesitant because they didn't want us even more embedded than we already were. But um, over time, they came to recognize the utility of it. And a number of big lenders explored it, experimented with it, it found it very successful. Consumers really liked it. Now we're in 250 million accounts across the country. Um, providing free FICO scores to consumers. You, you probably get your FICO score from your bank for free. And that's, you know, that's typical. But again, it just cements our position. How, how you know, how's the bank going to say goodbye to FICO when, um, you know, when the, there's so much reliance by the consumer and everyone else on the score? Looking at the state of the business now and some of the recent results that you guys put up uh, when you posted earnings, it seems like you're seeing good growth in scores. Seems like you're seeing relatively good growth in software as well. Um, what are the portions of the business that you're excited about and that you feel like people should be paying attention to? Well, I think um, we have, you're absolutely right that we have good growth on both sides of the business. And that wasn't always the case. I think, you know, if you go back 15 years ago, our software business was growing one or two percent a year. Our scores business was growing five, six, seven percent. You know, it really went with GDP. It went up and down with GDP, um, which is understandable, kind of given its role. We've done a lot of things to it, and so now both our software business and our scores business grow double digit, almost consistently. You know, year in year out, and um, so I'm you know I'm excited about both sides of the business. They're they're different 
because the scores business is uh, is kind of an IP licensing business. And so it's got very, very high margins. It's a 90% margin business growing double digit. That's part of why our stock is as um, popular as it is. And then our software business is much more of a business of the future because we're growing very, very fast. Our, our software platform business is growing over 40% year over year and has been for four years. Um, that I think that tells you that the dog's eating the food, the, you know, the CRM business is alive and well, and it's going to do very well, but it's not a profitable business today. It's a break-even business. And that's because we're pouring money into R and D we're chasing market share, um, and, and maintaining our lead from a features and functionality standpoint. Um, someday we'll improve the margins. That's up to us. We have the opportunity to do that whenever we choose to, but right now we're putting all the energy into growth, growth, growth. And so which side am I excited about? I mean, I love them both. They're two, two wonderful children that I love equally. <laughs> you've, uh, you've mentioned the, the stock performance there by my count. And these are round numbers. I think stock is up about 3000% since you took over the CEO role in 2012. Top line's gone from about 650 million to over 1.5 billion. Uh, net income has about 5X'd to 450 million on a trailing 12-month basis. Can you talk a little bit about the management philosophy? You mentioned focusing on growth right now, but just what you guys are prioritizing when it comes to allocating capital and the projects that you're interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for pointing those statistics out. And it's really great when you point them out relative to the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000, because we're, we're in the top 1%. We're in the 99th percentile on total shareholder return against all the major indices. We're we're really we're a top ten top ten company out of the S and P five hundred on TSR over the last twelve years. So that I mean that's the track record, and the philosophy that goes with it is you start with believing that your job is to make the stock more valuable. Your job is to take care of shareholders. That's what we think we have to do here. That's that's what we wake up every morning thinking about. Now, obviously, the only way you get there is by focusing on customers and quality product and you know all the employees and all the constituencies that that the company touches. But what, there's no there's no uh, fuzziness in our thinking. There's a lot of clarity. Our goal is to take care of our shareholders and to maximize the value of FICO over the long term. We take a three to five year horizon. We do nothing on a quarterly basis. So unlike a lot of software businesses, we do not chase quarterly earnings. We give guidance annually. And, uh, you know, the, the business goes up and down on a quarterly basis, and we don't really pay a lot of attention to it. Unlike a lot of software businesses, you don't get extra discount for closing a deal at the end of the quarter. Our, our guys are instructed to tell our customers, well, this is the price you can have next week, you can have this week. When you're ready to buy the stuff, we'll work with you. And, and it's, it's a much healthier relationship with your customers. And it's um, in the long run, it took a while to kind of get this culture in place. But in the long run, I think it's it's good for the business. It really is good for the business. So, you know, shareholders first, long term view of the business. We treat it like a family business. We you know, the we have three values, you know, in our company um, act like an owner. Uh, to delight, delight our customers and earn the respect of others. Those are the three. But the number one value in our company is act like an owner. And I never miss an opportunity with our people to talk about this is your company. And we have very wide stock ownership also within. We have 3,500 employees, over a third of them own stock. I mean, a lot for a public company. 
And, um, and I, I encourage them to think about it as a family business. And, you know, you have, you have money and resources at your disposal. You have budgets that you work, you have people who work for you, you have your own time. And if you don't feel like you're spending your financial and human capital the right way, you have an obligation to stand up and change it. You know, this is your business. If it were a family business, would you be doing what you're doing or would you change it? And, and that's really the mentality in our place. So it's, it's, a, it's a real ownership mentality. Um, I too am a big owner of the business. I'm a public company CEO, but my net worth is tied up in this company. Everyone knows it. And, um, and I treat it like a family business. Um, in terms of capital allocation, you know, we don't do a lot of M&A and it's an interesting problem because we have a very high um, PE. And so virtually anything we wanted to do would be accretive. So if our only goal were accretion, we would do a lot more M&A than we do. But the problem comes when you start comparing a business that we would buy with the business that we're already in. On that basis, they're all dilutive. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, we look at it and we say, well, do we like that business better than we like our own? And if the answer is no, we don't. And that's typical. We say, well, let's take our free cash flow and put it into stock buyback. And so if you look at that, you know, over the last, it's more than just my tenure, but certainly during my tenure, we have been very big buyers of our own stock. And I mean, we were 76 million shares at the, at the high point. We were 36 million shares when I joined the board. We were 30 million shares when I became CEO. And today we're about 25 million shares. So we've come down quite a bit. We're basically kind of a slow motion LBO. And uh, <laughs> we like it that way. I mean, we, we're, we're very confident in our own business. We love our business. We're confident in our business. And um, given the choice, we'd rather put the money into our own business than into another one. So we still do very small acquisitions, little tuck-ins for technology, sometimes talent acquisitions. But um, it, although we look all the time, we're always looking. Um, the, the, the reality is that we just like our business better than everyone else's. There's a reason we love our business. I mean, it's a good business. There are a couple things uh, that seem to be affecting the industry that I want to dig into with you and get your take on. Uh, the first one, and this is true of anybody in the tech space, anybody of the software space, is artificial intelligence. Knowing that you're in analytics and knowing that you're in software, what do some of the AI investments look like for FICO? Well, we do. We we are obviously involved in AI. We have a bunch of patents in AI. It, it, it's an interesting area for us because we, you know, we've been in analytics. We've been in AI for a very long time in machine learning and neural nets, and um, there's a time and place for it. So, you know, on, on generative AI, which is what everyone's buzzing about these days, I think that FICO will benefit in the same way that everyone else does in terms of lowering costs and call centers and coding and things like that. Uh, I think that in underwriting, it'll be a, quite a while before AI really works its way into the, the, you know, the production side of underwriting. And that's because it's so heavily regulated. Um, you know, the, the regulators demand to understand why did you make the decision that you made? And let's make sure that it complies with fair lending practices. And AI doesn't lend itself easily to that. It's, it's a little bit more of a black box and you have to kind of unpack how it is that the AI got to the decision that it got to. Now, we have a bunch of patents in this space where we call it explainable AI, ethical AI, um, and we do have patents in the space and we are prepared to use it. And we do use AI and, you know, synthetic data in our modeling. You have to be careful and use it in the right places. And, and so that's how, kind of how it affects us. Uh, we definitely are investing in it. And, you know, for others, sometimes it's a hobby and a toy. And I think there's also appropriate uses. 
One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was buy now, pay later. Uh, and this is this is kind of an interesting topic in credit. It's been growing very quickly. We actually saw quite a few consumers taking use of buy now, pay later programs this holiday season. Can you talk a little bit about how it fits into the credit industry right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, buy now, pay later typically is um, people who are expanding their access to credit by working a deal with a buy now, pay later company to essentially buy a product on installment. Um, that, that, that's basically what it is. And the challenges are that the bureaus don't all treat the payments the same way. They don't treat this data the same way. There's not a consistency yet in how it's treated. I think that there's a benefit for consumers because not just do they, not only do they have the access to the credit, incremental credit, but they also can, can provide more data to those who care about their credit practices. And so there are opportunities to improve your credit standing with buy now, pay later. We're working with FICO's working with a firm right now to sort out how do we standardize the use of the buy now, pay later data so they can really be incorporated in scores and, and give people access to credit they wouldn't otherwise have on the revolving side. So I, you know, I think it's a it's a good development in the industry. Um, it fits a very specific need. I mean, we've had installment loans forever, but I think we've kind of figured out how to how to do it in a you know twenty first century way. I think it's a good thing, and we're working on trying to get the benefit of it for the consumer on the data side. That that's still under under. Uh, you know, we're, we're working on how to do it well. Listeners, we're always looking for ideas on companies and leaders you want to hear from. If you've got an idea, shoot us a note at podcasts at fool.com. Coming up after the break, Bill Mann and Jason Moser return with a couple stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. When she walks, she swings her arms instead of her hips. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Bill Mann and Jason Moser. We're going to jump right into radar stocks. Each week, you bring the stocks, our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, hits you the question, or sometimes, even better yet, more of a comment. Bill, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I'm looking at one of the most powerful cosmetics brands in the world, a company called Estee Lauder. Their company and has been hit very hard, lost a lot of market share. They've lost a lot of gross margin. And the question for me, and their earnings are on Monday, are they going to get back to their former glory? They are they're forecasting $2.60 in earnings. Two years ago, they were $7. If it is a $2.60 stock, it's very expensive. It's more to a $7 stock. It is is very, very cheap. So, it's a company that's a family-run company. Basically, they've had a storyline that would have been, you know, would have fit on succession. <laughs> but here we are, and the company still goes forward. And what are we going to get on Monday? Dan, a question about Estee Lauder. Yeah, uh, Bill, respectfully, what the heck do you know about cosmetics? Dan, it depends. 80% gross margins. Do you like money? <laughs> I mean, that, that makes sense. You can't just ignore it just because you're not necessarily no. the end customer. No, and I use product. Yeah. I, I've got a facial regimen. I don't know what your problem is, Dan. Whew. All right. Jason, what's on your radar this week? 
Uh, yeah, keeping an eye on Etsy, uh, ticker is E-T-S-Y, uh, we will see Etsy earnings toward the end of the month. But before that, we saw this week, Elliott Management is going activist on Etsy. They built up a 13% stake in the company and even got a board seat. You know, it's funny, you, re- you read management's take on this, they seem to be you know, optimistic about this. So I, I don't know, but clearly the the company is, is is pulled back significantly after the big COVID bounce that so many uh, companies saw over the last few years. Etsy is a good business. Okay, let's let's get that out of the way. Fundamentally, it's a good business, but they've hit a wall, right? They pulled a lot of growth forward, as as most did, and and I think now you you have some questions in regard to the house of brand strategy. They did dump Elo Seven in the middle of last year, and that was a relatively smaller acquisition. But it, it at least begs the question: Are these other acquisitions? Paying off, or will they pay off as, as management had hoped? Uh, given Elliott's track record, this could very well be a positive catalyst for the stock in the coming quarter. So, looking forward to the earnings report at the end of the month. Dan, a question about Etsy. How about a comment instead? So, this is one of those shops where whenever my wife is on Etsy, I start to get a little concerned about the bank accounts, boys. Right there with you. I was going to say, I mean, I think that this is a very Valentine's Day radar stock segment. We have we have gift ideas. We have gift ideas abound. Uh, Dan, which one's going on your watch list this week? Honestly, this is a tough one. Uh, but the truth is, I don't know Estee Lauder very well. So, I got to go with Etsy. I'm a proud customer and a fan of the pick. Dan, thank you for weighing in. Bill Mann, Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. 